Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. If you do not have a copy of the Word of God, I would encourage you. There is There are pew Bibles alongside each end of the pews, and if you're sitting in the chairs in the back, you can find them under your chair or at least somewhere in your row of chairs you should be able to find a a Bible. And if you're using a pew Bible, it is page 983, page 983, Romans chapter 11, and we are going to look at verses 33 to 36. We have been meditating this month on what we call, and it's not just we, what have been called the five solas. The five solas of the Reformation. That is, these are the truths that were recovered and that really became the driving force for the Reformation. It is what altered the landscape. We saw the first week that we are saved by grace alone. And the second week is, it is through faith alone. And last week we meditated on that. It is in Christ alone. And this week we are going to meditate on this truth that it is all to the glory of God alone. And while we call these the five solas of the Reformation, the reality is you will not find a single Reformation preacher or teacher who actually mentions soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. It is the lifeblood of the solas. It is the glue which holds them all together. It is the undercurrent which is moving everything forward. But they never mention it explicitly. The the first evidence we have of soli deo gloria comes to us from Johannes Bach as he would compose music at the end of his musical compositions. He would sign them SDG, soli deo gloria. To drive our eyes and all who read and played that music to play it to the glory of God alone. We meditated a few weeks ago on Luther, Martin Luther, and his role, and we're going to come back to him today. In 1517, he nailed those 95 theses on October 31st, so next Sunday would be the anniversary of that, October 31st. Luther himself, Martin Luther, nails the 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door, wanting to debate these things. But it's really in the following year, 1518, as Luther is teaching and he has been teaching and he's been writing on those things, defending what he saw in scripture, that these things began to come to a head. And it was as he was asked, invited to the city, to the town of Heidelberg to have a dispute there. That is to defend his beliefs, to articulate what he believed and to give an argument, to to show why his way was the right way and why what has been taught and was being taught in the Roman Catholic Church was only a distraction and a dangerous one is that. This is called the Heidelberg Disputation. And there, Luther, he lays out two, two ways of thinking. He calls one the theology of the cross. That is a, a, an understanding that all that we have, all the grace that we, have re- that we can and will receive from God, it comes 
from God and God alone. He is the one who initiates it. He is the one who sees it through without any help from us. He is the one who will complete it in the end. It is to, glory, to God's glory. That is the, the theology of the cross. But he lays out another, another angle to this. One he saw prevalent in the Roman Catholic Church. And he called this a theology of glory. But, but not of God's glory, but of our glory. That is, it is we who initiate it. We who contribute to it. We who through our efforts, through our prayers, through our, perhaps through, not just through our ritual obligations and, and obedience, but also perhaps through our, our passivity. That is, we were willing to receive it or through our own ingenuity that we saw something that others were blind to. Some quality about us. This he called a theology of glory. We might, we might say a theology of man's glory. And he lays these two out. And he says, these are the two ways you will see in the world. A theology of the cross, a theology of glory. And he understood that a theology of glory puts us in control. It usurps the rightful place of God by putting humanity at the center of the universe. Friend, perhaps you are not a Christian this morning. You have never yourself turned from going your own way and submitted your life to Christ. Not, not that you're perfect, but that you just never submitted your life to Christ and you have never called out to God trusting in Jesus alone to save you. If you have never done that, this may not fully make sense. But you see, at the very heart and root of the gospel, we believe that it is not something that you and I do. It is not mere church attendance, not mere religiosity and, and following through a prescribed set of disciplines that will save us. It is not some spiritual experience or feeling that we have internally that is the rock of our salvation. It is not our own sincerity. It is not our own works or effort, our own sweat. It is by the grace of God alone that any of us are saved. We often hear people talk about uh, today the, the idea that God has a wonderful plan for your life. As if that is the heart and soul of the gospel. That God has a wonderful plan for your life. Friend, I, I want to point you to the fact that indeed God does have a wonderful plan, but it may not be the plan that you think is wonderful. You know, Christ himself, is there any greater plan than what Christ fulfilled? And would any of us willingly go to the cross? What we find in scripture is a theology of the cross. That is a, a, an understanding that we relate to God not on the basis of what we contribute or what we can bring to the table, but on the basis of what God has done for us. And we believers, you who are Christians or call yourselves Christians, we need to recover this today. Why? Because we live in a, in a self-centered world. We live in a world that, that 
teaches us from the, from the moment we take our first breath to be consumers, to evaluate what we want by our own preferences and our own desires. We, we are the center of the universe. And we bring that understanding when it comes to ourselves and in the world, we bring that same understanding into church. And that, that idea of a consumer may work well when you walk into a Dunkin' Donuts or to a Starbucks or Wawa, wherever you get your coffee in the morning. But it is terrible when we walk into the church. It is terrible when we bring that thinking into our life with God. When we walk into the church thinking about what this does for me, it turns everything in upside down. We gather to worship who? Our God. And if we are never challenged, if we are never uncomfortable, if we are never uh, pushed, if we never find ourselves the least bit convicted, it is a good question to ask whether we are worshiping God or whether we are worshiping ourselves. Too often churches today, they, enter, they, they emphasize entertainment or politics. Whatever the people in their church want to hear. And yet, we are called to be people of the Lord. To worship God and God alone. What is the most significant problem we as Christians face today? Think about that. What is the most significant issue facing Christians here in our country today? Is it who is in the White House? Or who has control over the Senate? Or the House of Representatives? Is it what is being taught? Is it CRT? I would argue that the most important thing, the most pressing issue for Christians today is that we need to recover a sense of the glory of God in all things. Writing about this decades ago was a man by the name of David F. Wells. He writes this, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean that by this, that he is ethereal, that God is you know, a spirit and has no weight but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not even be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique. It is not insufficient organization or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources, bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood spilling from the church's wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment too benign. His gospel too easy. And his Christ is too common. A God with whom we are on easy terms and whose reality is little different from our own, who is merely there to satisfy our needs, this God has no real authority to compel us and he will soon begin to bore us. 
And because we have turned to a God that we can neither, that we can use rather than a God that we must obey, we have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us and for our satisfaction. And we have come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. We imagine that he is benign, that is, he is domesticated, he is tame, he is weak and helpless, that he will acquiesce as we toy with his reality. We co-opt him in the promotion of our ventures and our careers. Brothers and sisters, what is the most pressing danger for the church today? It is that we are losing a sense of the ineffable weight of the glory of God. And it has been my prayer this week that by the grace of God we would learn to find him more glorious, more compelling than any advertisement we may see this approaching Christmas season. That we will find him more satisfying and more attractive than any event that may take up our time, that we may find him more interesting than television, more authoritative than our own desires and appetites, more gripping than the evening news, more alluring than our comfort. For if we fail to do this, we, we, will, be, we will be a church of the walking dead. A zombie church. That is, we will will look like we were alive. We will have all the signs of life. We will sing. We will read. We will pray. We will preach. We will do all of those things. But we will have none of the power of God unless we are enthralled with the glory of God. That has been my prayer this week. I'd invite you now to pray with me as we go to the Lord. I, I realize that was a long introduction, all right? It, some sermons have like an introduction for like a plane that's small and can easily lift off. This one was more like a Boeing 747. It needed a little bit of time. But before we go to the Lord, before we go to the Lord's word and study it, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, strengthen us as we go now to your word to submit ourselves to it. Open our eyes, O oh God, that we may see your glory and be caught up and captivated by you. It is in Christ's name, your son, we pray. Amen. We find ourselves looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Let me read it for us, these four short verses. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. And that 
That phrase there at the end of verse 36, to him be glory forever. That is Paul's main thesis in these verses. To him be glory forever. That is Paul's driving point. Everything before this is leading to this. Those are the reasons why we ought to give glory to God alone. And so we need to kind of understand the, the context of this passage. If that's the main point, that we are to give glory to God alone, we need to understand the context of this passage. And the first thing that we need to see that in verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul is giving us this command. In light of all that God has done, therefore we are to offer up our bodies, our very lives, as living sacrifices in worship to God. All of this is a bridge to that. Paul has been unpacking the gospel and now he is preparing to launch into this is now what it looks like. But more than that, leading up to this, up to this passage, Paul has been tracing, tracing the incomprehensible plan of God. The incomparable plan of God. His grace and we do not have time to, to navigate that quickly. In my notes this morning, I, I, I have three pages dedicated tracing the argument from Romans 8 all the way to this. And we don't have time to delve into it. But if you stay after today, I'll pre... No, I'm just kidding. But back in chapter 8, Paul, Paul begins to unpack some of the glorious promises of God that we have if we have trusted in Christ. He begins to talk about this in verses 28 to 29 and 30. He begins to unpack this idea of that everything, if we have trusted in Christ and we belong to Christ, that all that we will face in this life will turn out for our ultimate good. And we know that, he says, because he has foreloved us, he has foreknown us, he has predestined us, and he goes, traces this, this argument all the way to glorification. And then he will trace out after that how we can know that no matter what happens in this world, we are secured by the love of God. But this raises significant questions. In chapter 9, it is what then are we to say? Has God forsaken his promises to Israel? That is, that is the question that begins to drive chapters 9 to 11. What about God's promises to Israel? Has God failed now that he has brought in the Gentiles and his non-Jewish peoples in Christ and called them his people? Has he abandoned his people Israel? And Paul's answer is that first, God has the right. It is his mercy and his will alone that determines who comes in. He, as the potter, has right over the clay. It is his mercy that, uh, that drives it. It is nothing within us. There is no ultimate deciding factor that we, uh, in us that causes God to, to save us. And this goes into chapter 10, where we see that it is still by faith and faith alone. And this bleeds then into chapter 11, where Paul is going to ask two questions. First question in verses 1 to 10, he asks the question, has God then rejected Israel? That is, is God finished with Israel? And Paul's answer is no, despite his judgment on Israel, God has always been faithful to his people by preserving a remnant within the people of Israel. Even in the Old Testament, when all of Israel was abandoning the Lord, there was within Israel a remnant who was faithful. 
And the second point that Paul makes is that in light of all that God is doing, was it now, is it now God's plan for Israel to stumble and fall away completely because he is done with them? And the answer again is no. And he goes on and he says, look, Israel's fall was according to the divine plan of God so that he could expand his promises to the Gentile people so that we could be included. And he asks this question, if, if the falling away of Israel means the inclusion of the Gentiles, what then will the full inclusion of the people of Israel mean for the world? And his answer, it will mean salvation. It will mean glory. And it has been in result of tracing all of that that we now come to verse this 33 where he cries out, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There are three simple outlines to this passage. You have uh, verse 33. You, you can see that there are three exclamations in verses 34 to 35. There are three questions. And in verse 36, there are three statements. Three exclamations, three questions, three statements. And the first question begins with this this word, oh. And we're not simply, simply supposed to read it and pass by it. it you got to read it the way you will. Paul is making here the same sound some of you will make on Thanksgiving Day when you sit down and you take that first bite of your favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal. Oh. That's good. Paul is reveling in it. Oh, this is, this is an emotional response here, which, which almost boggles the mind. Paul, Paul is in Romans. He has been writing what we would consider this incredibly tightly argued theological treatise almost. And, and an emotional response like this just doesn't seem to fit. It's like being asked, students, you who are in school, it's like being asked to write a paper on a, on a book, okay, a book report. And towards the end of that book report, in the last paragraph, you start off with, oh, this was a great book. Oh, it just seems out of place. Paul is marveling at what God has done. It's an emotional response, an expected response. And he, and he goes in, and he is praising the depth, and here in the New King James, it's, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So in the New King James, it sounds like Paul is praising two things, the depth of the riches, uh, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So the riches and the depth of wisdom and knowledge. But the same word that links wisdom and knowledge is the same word that links riches and wisdom. It is the word that we would normally translate and, which is why many of your translations will reflect that. Both, it, so, so it would read, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So Paul is praising three things, not two. He is praising the riches of God. That is, the resources of God are infinite here, especially as it relates to God's mercy. Think about this for a moment. And, and this, this is pastorally important for each of you. 
There is never a time where God will run out of grace or mercy for you. God doesn't have to ration his grace from day to day. He, he doesn't have to measure it out. You've got this much today and, and this much tomorrow and you've overdrawn and so you've got to borrow from the future and make up for it the next day. That's not how it works with God. The resources of, infinite, of his grace are infinite. They are bottomless. God doesn't have to pace himself with us. When you feel like perhaps God has had it up to the very top with you and you are just one small mistake of being kicked out, brother and sister, your feelings are wrong. Do not trust them. The resources, the riches of God's grace are infinite. Not only are his riches of grace infinite, his wisdom is infinite. If you've ever seen a, a master at his job, someone incredibly skillful, complete a, a task, create something, you, you know what it is to marvel at their skill and ability. And we here are invited in to marvel at the infinite wisdom of God and how he leads and guides. We see but, but short bursts ahead of us. We are given but such little light to live by. We do not see the end from the beginning, but we worship him who was both Alpha and the Omega. The one who knows all. The one who is all wise. God isn't winging it. It is all going according to his plan. And he praises here God's knowledge as well. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, if we could gather all of the Nobel Prize winners, if we could gather all of the, the greatest scientists who have ever lived, the greatest mathematicians, the greatest philosophers, leave out all of the politicians, if we could gather the most brilliant people in every category, their knowledge would be a, a meaningless drop in the bucket compared to the knowledge of God. There is nothing that God doesn't know. And it's not even that God knows all things. God even knows the things that would be had different things been done. Had you made different choices, he knows exactly what, it would, have, what would have been done then. His knowledge, his contingent knowledge, or as philosophers will call it, because they've got to make a living, they've got to create words, they call it middle knowledge. He knows all that has been, he knows all that will be, he knows all that is, and he knows all that could have been. Paul is marveling at God's grace, the riches of God's grace, the riches of God's wisdom, and the riches of his knowledge. And he goes on, these next two exclamations, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out, or we might say his ways being inscrutable. These two lines are arguing for essentially the same thing. Paul is marveling at how God has directed all humanity from Adam to Abraham to Moses to King David to the exile to Christ and now to the nations. 
He is looking ahead and seeing how God will at one day, will one day bring all things to an end. And what has seemed confusing and perhaps impossible, Paul is telling us is all a part of the eternal plan of God to redeem sinners. And his ways are past finding out. They are inscrutable. And Paul is just in awe. And he goes on to launch three questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Secondly, who has become his counselor? And third, who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? On one level, these questions, they're rhetorical. That is, the answer is obviously supposed to be no. We're not supposed to answer, huh, I know this guy named Ralph. And you know what? He's like this. The, the, the questions are rhetorical. But on another level, they, they, are, they are something more. That they, Paul is quoting Old Testament passages. In fact, between Romans chapter 9 to Romans chapter 11, he quotes the Old Testament 25 times. And here we have two more allusions. One he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. The other one he quotes from Job. And in each section, Paul isn't just picking out verses that will help him. He is trying to point us to the entire teaching of those books. Isaiah is writing in chapter 40 to the exiled people of God. Pointing them to the truth that God is not finished with them, but that God will one day restore them and redeem them and bring them, deliver them out of exile. He is pointing them to look ahead so that they do not allow their present circumstances to cause them to lose hope. And in the second quotation, he is, in, in quoting Job, it is there at the end of Job when God is asking Job a series of questions. And at each time, Job, Job would like to tap out. Thank you. I, I thought I wanted to, an audience with you, O oh Lord. I thought I wanted to ask my questions. But you know what? I'm good. You, you win the debate. But here what we find is that even in the midst of Job's suffering, God is trying to point him to this reality. That Job has no ability to complain. No right to complain, we should say it that way. No right to complain. No, no authority to be able to offer up to God any kind of counsel. And the upshot of this is three things. First, we cannot judge God's faithfulness and power or goodness to us on the basis of how well our lives are going. We do not judge our Lord based on our circumstances. Rather, we are to reverse that, to judge our circumstances based about what, on what we know about our God. The second thing is that we are to never complain. For when we complain, what we are essentially doing is saying this, God, I know better. Oh, if you would have talked to me, I, I could have told you how this event was supposed to go. I could have offered you some wise counsel. I could have given you some instruction, God. There, there's something you don't know. There's, there's something you aren't fully understanding. But who can give counsel to God? And the last thing it points us to is that God does not owe us an explanation. 
He doesn't owe us anything, not even an explanation. So rather than coming to God with complaints or grumbling, we ought to show gratitude. And this leads us to verse 36. Three statements pointing us to the centrality of God in all things. For of him and through him and to him are all things. And that, that phrase there at the end, are all things, that should be attached to each of those words. For all things, for of him are all things, and through him are all things, and to him are all things. Do you see that? Everything that exists comes from God. God has made every flower, every plant, everything has come from his hand. And not only is everything from him, but everything is through him. That is, it speaks to the fact that God is at this moment sustaining everything. You live not because God has not yet stopped your heart from beating, you live because God is the one who is sustaining your beating heart. We live at his pleasure. All things are sustained at the pleasure of God. Friend, just think about how incredible this is. You and I, we get annoyed, young people. How annoyed do you get when the Wi-Fi at your house goes out? Right? Is there anything worse than that? There is never an interruption in the sustaining power of God. He has never lost focus. His eye has never wandered. His power has never once fluctuated. He has never once wished he had more bandwidth to bless us more. Our God is a sustaining God. And he has been sustaining creation for thousands of years. And the scriptures tell us that he will go on sustaining it forever. It will be judged, yes, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Not only from him and through him are all things, but also, what is that last line? To him. What is the point of everything? What is the point of your life God is. It is his pleasure, his glory. Why? Because he alone is worth it. All things exist for God, even God. The reason God creates is for his glory. The reason God sustains is for his glory. The reason God delivers and saves, it is all for his glory. God does not save us because we are awesome. He does not send his son into the world because we are somehow worthy of it. God saves and redeems us for his glory by his grace. What Paul is saying is that God has, God has created everything and he sustains everything and all that he creates and all that he sustains, it is for him. And just think about this for a moment. This afternoon... You will go home, or you will go out. You will sit down, you will eat. And while you are eating, before you will eat, 
You, you may pray and you will thank the Lord for what he has given you. And you will pray as we do at our table, thank you for providing this food. But we know that the food does not just arrive at our table with a, with a click of the fingers, although many of you probably wish that it did. There is someone that has to prepare it, isn't there? Someone who has to know how to prepare the food. And, and think about all the ingredients that they have to use. And think about all of the, the tools that they use, the pots and the pans and the oven. Or the, or the microwave. Think about it all. Think about the water that flows into your house and all the piping and all, all of the wisdom that it took to get there. Think, think about all of the, within our own country, the structure in our economy that has to take place for you to even have pots and pans that fill your cabinets, for you to have dishes on. And what are you going to put that food on? A table. Certainly, all of that stuff doesn't just arrive there by a click of the fingers, ex nihilo, out of nothing. But it does arrive there. Everything that is there is something that God has made, and he has given the wisdom and the skill and the structure for all of it to exist. One meal. One meal. Now think about your car ride home. Think about the very pews and the seats that you're sitting on. Think about the air, the comfort that we are sitting in. Maybe you are a little cold. Maybe you are just right. To the glory of God alone. The glory of God is the infinite excellency of the nature of God, the infinite brightness. The, the old Puritans used to refer to the brightness of God as his. Here is your... your um, your words with friends, word of the day, okay? It is, they called it his effulgence. His effulgence, the brightness of God's glory. And that glory is all around us. It is in the leaves rustling in the trees. It is the warmth of sunshine on our skin. It is the smell of fresh rainfall or salt from the ocean spray. It is the... It is what we can marvel at when we look at the colors of creation, at a sunset or a sunrise. It is the stately manner of a massive buck whose antlers reach to the sky as it stands in the middle of the road watching you come. It is what we see twinkling in the night sky. There's stars in the infinite, unfathomable expanse of space. You know, William Shakespeare once wrote that all the world is a stage. John Calvin answered that saying, the world is a theater for the divine glory. And this glory is especially seen in salvation. The birth of our Savior, the God-man come to take on humanity, being fully and truly and completely obedient where you and I fail and him going to the cross. And as the blood flows down and mingles with the dust of this earth and our Savior gives up his last breath, crying out, it is 
finished. He pays the penalty that, that was due unto us so that all who trust in him might be accepted, might be forgiven, might be cleansed. That we, as Peter will write in 1 Peter 3.18, that we might come to God. God being the great end and goal of the work of Christ. Friends, do not make the mistake this morning of looking away from Christ. Turn away from going your own way. Plead with God to ignite within you a sense of awe at what God at who God is and what he has done and is doing and will one day do. Let me close briefly with four admonitions. First, our lives must be to the glory of God. That's, that's simple. We live in a world that urges us to be radically self-centered and narcissistic. We live in a world that is determined to distract us. Discipline your lives, friends. Discipline your lives to gaze on the glory of God through the word, through, through songs and music, by, by gathering regularly together, this is part of God's gift to you so that we together might gaze on him who is worthy of our time. The world will know what we love most by what we do with our time and resources. Aim your life at the discipline. Aim your life at the glory of God. Whether it be sports or your hobbies or home projects, aim it all at the glory of God. Subsume it all. Push it all down in service to him who, who is worthy of that sacrifice. Our aim in life must be God's glory. Not only that, our aim obviously then, and I say obviously, by, but it is not obvious to the world. Our aim in worship must be to God's glory. Worship that has our pleasure, our desires, our, our preferences, or worship that runs on the poles of what we want is not a worship that is aimed at the glory of God. We want to be so God-centered as a church the two things will happen. One, that we will challenge one another to see and savor God for who he is. That when we gather together, we will, be, we will find our hearts corrected. There will be a course correction, a calibration in our hearts week after week after week that we will remember together, yes, it is our God that we should love. It is our God that we should serve. It is our God that we worship. First, so that there is a course correction, but secondly, Friends, it is so that those who enter to in our midst who do not want anything to do with God, who do not care about God, will find themselves uncomfortable. And our hope is that discomfort will lead to a, a desire to find out why are people gathered on a Sunday morning? Why give up this time to worship God? Why would we spend our lives and give of our resources for this one. God does care how we worship and it is his opinion that matters most and this will alter our worship. It will affect our worship. It may mean that we need to, when we gather for worship, we, 
We go to bed a little earlier on Saturday night. That we make some preparations at that time. We know fully what it's like to have that Sunday morning panic. I say we, I'm speaking really of my wife. I get here really early and my wife deals with four mostly insane boys. Um, They're wonderful, but they're boys. And they're as forgetful as wives as your husbands are. We know what that's like. Prepare, prepare your heart, prepare your mind, prepare your body, come ready and set aside this time that we may worship together. Thirdly, our aim in work and in relationships must be to God's glory. Our aim in our work must be to God's glory. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter six. He tells us to work with a sincere heart as you would for Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, that is not for the approval of others, even our bosses, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Men and women, young people, work. Work hard, work well. Whether it's in a workplace, whether it's at home and changing diapers or taking care of things there, whether it is young people, whether it is you applying yourself to your studies, work where God has placed you. Work for his glory, as to the Lord and not for the praise of your teacher or for the praise of your parents or for the praise of your boss or for the praise of your spouse or whatever recognition you are hoping for. Praise, work for the praise of God, for the glory of God. And lastly, our aim and missions is to the glory of God. Our aim and missions is to the glory of God. We partner, we pray, and we support missionaries for the spread of the gospel. We give and go and we work. Why? Because as God is glorified through the spread of the gospel, as men and women and children around the globe, even at this moment, are hearing the gospel preached, hearing the word taught, and there are, there are people who are hearing the word taught because of this church having supported and sent out missionaries. We do that so that God is glorified, not just locally, but globally. We do it all for the glory of God. God declares in Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I will give to no other. And if the Lord cannot and will not give his glory to the other, to any other, neither should we. Let us live to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Now, Father, thank you for your love toward us. Thank you for your word this morning, which reminds us of your great glory. Would you cause us today to be made increasingly aware of how and where 
We have substituted your glory with the pleasure and the glory of this world. Teach us to love you, O God, to prize you, to treasure you above all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.